Good morning. If you have a Bible, would you please join me in John chapter 7? If you would like to borrow a Bible or have a Bible, we'd love to get one to you. Raise your hand high and, and uh, one will come to you eventually. And if you'd like to keep it, we would love for you to do so. If you are visiting this morning, thanks for joining us. We're very glad to have you. Uh, we are in a series in the Gospel of John called Following Jesus Together. And we are in part three of three weeks in John chapter 7, looking at some things that Jesus does and says at the Feast of Booths. And these past three weeks, we've been honing and focusing down to really one thing, or a statement rather, that Jesus makes in verse 38. And so uh, you'll see where we're going this morning. This morning is a bit different. We have been walking line by line through the text the past two weeks. We're going to do the same this morning, but in drilling down, it's actually going to take us, spread some roots out through the rest of the New Testament. So uh, you may want to have a finger in your table of contents because we're going to be looking at a number of different passages, but you'll see that in a few moments. So John chapter 7, let me read verses 37 to 39, pray, and we'll look to God and his word. Beginning in verse 37, scripture reads, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this Jesus said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Well, that's God's word. Let's look to him together in prayer. Father, this morning, the I think the prayer before us from your word is pretty simple. Make us thirsty. And Jesus, you just made clear that thirsting for you is that analogy of believing in you. And so I pray that for all of us, for longtime believers, for new believers, for those curious and investigating your claims, Jesus, that you would give us a soul thirst that is only satisfied through your gospel and the ever-present and ongoing ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to feel and minds to think through what your word says and to believingly receive them with joy. God, do a work in us and let us leave this place more like Christ, more satisfied in the Savior, more eager to walk and follow his ways. Lord, let us think about living the Christian life as you do. To that end, Lord, would you let the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. All of God's people said, Amen. I wonder what your expectations are for the Christian life. Meaning, if you could be a new Christian, you could have been a Christian for uh, longer than most people have been alive in this room, and everything in between. And we all come with a set of expectations, and those expectations maybe come from family experiences, early church experiences, your reading of the word, cultural, whatever it is, but you have expectations for the Christian life. 
of what it's supposed to look like and feel like and how it's supposed to unfold. Now, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that rhetorical question of, of Christians, but maybe you're here this morning and, and you're considering Christ, and I'd also be curious what you would say, what, what you would think would happen, that if someone becomes a Christian, what should their life look like? And maybe if you become a Christian, what, what your life should look like. And I think in, in many ways, for many people, if they're a follower of Christ, and as time wears on, I think for many of us, if not all of us, we may begin the Christian life with high hopes, but the testing and trials that God brings our way, the ongoing effects of our own personal sin in us, and the ongoing effects of sin in the world around us and the people that we live with. And, and frankly, I think that wrong expectations that we have of Christians and wrong expectations we have of Jesus begin to dampen those high hopes that we have for living the Christian life. Over time, those high hopes can get buried by another load of laundry, by another relational conflict, by another morning with, well, rather another night with a desire to wake up early and pray and read your word, but yet you realize that it's been 30 days or 60 days or more since you've actually done that. And so early zeal in the Christian life may be replaced with a sighing resignation that, you know what, this is hard. In fact, following Jesus is a bit more tricky and difficult and far more unexpected than when I first began to follow Jesus. And then you read a passage like John 7, where Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, there's the invitation, let him come to me the command, and drink. Whoever believes in me, so thirsting is to believe in Jesus, whoever believes in me, as scripture has said, and and here's Jesus' description of the Christian life. Out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And so you, you hear that, and maybe you have some familiarity with the New Testament, and you also remember how Scripture teaches that the Holy Spirit can be grieved and resisted and quenched. And so you resign yourself to thinking that those living waters, those are for people who are good at being Christians. But me, I'm good at quenching. Now, we may not say that, But functionally, we might feel that. And then in feeling that, that actually becomes how we sort of begin to operate our lives. In other words, when you when you hear Jesus's promise of living waters, you 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 won't admit it because you probably know it's not true. But you would still think, yeah, that's for other Christians, but not for me. It reminds me of of a drive when I was taking his uh, high school kid home from youth group many years back. And I was asking him about his faith in Jesus. His, his parents were strong Christians. He had a, a good home. And he said, you know, I, he was shaking his head. He's a senior in high school. And he was just saying, I'm not very good at being a Christian. And I said, you know what, buddy? Me neither. But Jesus is. Technically, Jesus isn't a Christian because he is Christ. But you can see where I'm going with that. 
But Jesus, in this passage, and we've seen it the past two weeks, especially last week, this statement that Jesus is making is not for some super-Christians. It's not for a certain select portion of Christians. Jesus offers a shocking and intended alluring statement, invitation for you, every single one of us, to come to Jesus meaning to believe in Jesus, and that when we believe in Jesus, something changes in us, and the rest of the Christian life is trying to figure out what changed in you, and we'll give you, Jesus does, not just a quantity of life, eternal, but a quality of life that is eternal. You see, the living and flowing water of the Holy Spirit, the living and flowing water of the Holy Spirit, Jesus' words in verse 38, are the normal, ongoing description of the Christian life. The error that many of us may be bringing into this room or hearing these words is the error is to think that the ministry of the Holy Spirit is occasional or intermittent. We looked at that last week. Or as if the ministry of the Holy Spirit is only for super-Christians, but not us weak Christians. Turns out the ministry of the Holy Spirit is for all Christians. There's no such thing as a super Christian. As if the ministry of the Holy Spirit and this so-called living water, this fantastic image, as if the error is to think, it only occurs in extravagant, hyper-spiritual, hyped-up, ecstatic worship services. Or that the ministry of the living water of the Holy Spirit, to wrongly think that it's entirely dependent upon you, And if you are a quencher or resistor or griever of the Holy Spirit, that he will never have that living water flow through you because of harboring sin or living in foolishness or disregard to God's word. Listen, friends, the living water of the Holy Spirit is what it means to be Christian. And how we live the Christian life flowing and serving Jesus. We... We live in the mundane. We live in the mundane. The Spirit of God works in us in the mundane, and that should be some of the most encouraging and life-giving truths you hear. Especially if you're younger, especially if you're raised in this, uh, the social media, media digital age, the temptation to be an influencer, the temptation to likes, the temptation to favorites and shares is so profound that we see people who live these falsely manicured digital lives, it's all lies, and they post the post to look a certain way and it curates an image in your mind of a false life that they're actually not living. It looks like their life is spectacular. And so for the Christian, we begin to think that we have a baptized version of that where we're supposed to live this spectacular life. Well, listen, we actually live spectacular lives, just not in the way that our flesh or the world defines it. We are designed to live in the mundane. Jesus works in the mundane and normal. And the living water flows in the mundane and normal. And I'm going to suggest to you this morning that much of what sounds so spectacular and is spectacular is spectacular in a way you don't expect it. And the living water is mundane in a gloriously spiritual way. So building on the last two weeks... This morning, we're going to look at other passages to inform 
what Jesus means when he uses this word picture that every follower of Jesus now becomes a source of fountains of living water. Not sourced in yourself, but sourced because of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And, And here's a thesis for this morning. There is no command of the New Testament that when lived out is not sourced in the living waters of the Holy Spirit flowing through a Christian. Let me say that again. Because you read the New Testament, you pick up the epistles, the letters, you begin to read through them, and you see that we're told to do things and believe things and act a certain way. And we tend to think that that's just sort of a a me thing, that I'm supposed to somehow muster up the ability to do that on my own. No, there's no command in the New Testament, or every command in the New Testament, when it's lived out, is not sourced in you, it's sourced in the living waters flowing through you, and is evidence of those living waters. So today, here's what's going to happen. Today is like walking through an art gallery. Our aim is to walk through this biblical gallery of glorious gospel truths of what it means and looks like when the living water of the Holy Spirit flows in and through your Christian life. There are many, many halls to this gallery. Our time is short. We can't explore all of them. And neither can we pause long enough to fully study each biblical art, but by God's grace we will begin to appreciate The normal, non-flashy ministry of the Holy Spirit. The normal, non-flashy ministry of the Holy Spirit, which is entirely supernatural and flashy in a mundane way, if that makes sense. And thereby this morning, by God's grace, we could each gain confidence, strength, and hope Not in ourselves, but in Christ and His Spirit in us. So, here's where we're going with that long introduction. Five points. Don't blink. They're all quick. Here they are. We're going to be surveying Scripture. Here's the addresses. First, we're going to look at the living water of repentance. And for that, we're going to turn to two texts. Acts 11 and 2 Corinthians 7. It's 11.18 and 7.10. Then we're going to look at the living water of forgiveness. Ephesians 4.32. Then the living water of fruitfulness, we'll turn to that familiar passage in Galatians 5, 16 through 24, and then the living water of devoting yourself in Acts 2, 42 to 47, and then we will briefly close our time with the living water of sturdy hope from um, Ephesians 1 and some other passages. Actually, we're going to go to Romans 15 for that. So, number one, the living water of ongoing repentance. Where is this evidence of the Holy Spirit operative in your life? Listen to Acts eleven eighteen. Now, we're just parachuting right in. We're going mid-conversation, mid-teaching. But here's what we read in Acts eleven eighteen regarding the living water of ongoing repentance. When they heard these things, they fell silent... And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles, that is non-Jews, also God has granted repentance that leads to life. And, And I want you to invite your focus there to be on that last phrase, God has granted. 
repentance that leads to life. So, so what is repentance? It is a changing of the entire inner person that leads to a change of life. But repentance is first and foremost about belief and agreement with God. That's what repentance is. Believing what God says and agreeing with God, what God says. You know, in Matthew 4, Jesus stands and calls every human being to repent. That means that we believe what Jesus calls sin in our lives to actually be sin. We think and feel about sin the way Jesus does. We hate it and want to turn from it. Even though the world and our flesh have trained and indoctrinated us to believe that sin isn't sin. But Jesus says it is. And so we agree with Jesus that our personal sin is worthy of God's eternal justice and punishment in hell. That we are objects of wrath outside of Christ. And when we believe that and agree with God, when we think about lying and stealing, gossiping, slandering, sexual sin, which by the way, sexual sin is any sexual expression out of biblical marriage. If you're younger, you need to hear that because it's the opposite of what the world is teaching you. In the Bible, sexual sin is any sexual expression out of biblical marriage. Marriage, lying, stealing, gossiping, slandering, selfishness, unforgiveness, unrighteous anger. In fact, anything that does not proceed from faith is sin. And so to hear these words and then to be cut to the heart, to believe that God's word is right, then leads to something else. And it's this, that repentance. But with God... There is forgiveness, so he's feared. Jesus offers the grace of salvation by taking all of our sins upon himself on that cross and through his blood, as strange as it sounds, washes those sins away, removes our guilt and atones for us to make us right with God. And so when a person is cut to the heart, sees the sinfulness of their sin, confesses their sin, turns to Christ, this is the very first evidence of the flowing waters of the Holy Spirit, the living waters in a person's life. That's why Acts eleven eighteen says God has granted repentance. Meaning the Holy Spirit, read John 3 again, the Holy Spirit in a person caused them to be born again and lead them to repentance. And it's on this point right here, on, on evidence of this, that if, if you're not a Christian... But you're, you're, you're considering the claims of Christ, or maybe you've never bothered to consider the claims of Christ. Friend, consider the claims of Christ to be God in the flesh, to come down to rescue us eternally from ourselves and our sin and his right wrath eternally against our sin. That's the Christian message. And the bad news is that God's boot of justice is coming against you. And the good news is that Jesus took it for for you and from you so that by grace through faith, believing in Jesus, you could be saved. And if your heart is beginning to be broken open, so to speak, by these gospel good news truths, God is granting you repentance. 
Jesus is calling you by his spirit to repent. But repentance, that's a one-time, non-Christians-only thing, right? No. Repentance is not just a characteristic of becoming a Christian. Listen, repentance is a characteristic of being a Christian. What do I mean? How about 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10? 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10 reads, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. The Apostle Paul, in 2 Corinthians 7, is speaking to Christians, and he's speaking to people who professed faith in Christ, and who got tangled in sin and repented of that sin. And he's talking about godly grief produces repentance. There's many other passages we can look at, but the Christian life is one that's characterized by genuine repenting. So when I ask you at the beginning, what's your expectation of the Christian life? In one sense, it's one of ongoing repentance. Uh, You know, this in part is why the first of Martin Luther's 95 Theses, when he um, was sparking the Reformation by nailing this long piece of paper to a door at a castle. The first of his 95 Theses reads, When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, Repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. You see, as Christians... We recognize that we have remaining sin until the day we are brought into glory. And so we should be good at confessing and repenting. But our pride blocks the way. It's a favorite quote. I say it every other sermon. Get used to it. But for the Christian, nothing can be exposed about you. That hasn't already been covered By the blood of Jesus Christ. So if you already have eternal forgiveness from Jesus. Even for your Christian sins. Then what can be exposed about you on a horizontal public interpersonal level. That you can't say. You're right I I did do that or say that or acted that way. But praise be to God he has already forgiven me and his son. And I repent of doing that and harming or hurting you in that way. The gospel truth slays pride, cultivates humility, and opens the gates to freedom of repenting from sin when you see it. And so do you want to see evidence of the ongoing living water of the Holy Spirit in your life? Live a life characterized by repentance, which requires humility and seeing those things that we can't see of ourselves. And in doing so, brothers and sisters help us and we can turn from them. And in those moments when we see sin and and have that distaste for it, want to put it off and put on Jesus, that's evidence of John 7, 38, that the living waters of the Holy Spirit are flowing through you. Number two, the living water of forgiveness. Please join me in Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 32. Here's another example 
of what it means and looks like to have the life-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. We've moved from repentance to forgiveness now. The living water forgiveness, Ephesians 4.32 reads, Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness is always a release of debt. There is some type of wrong against you. And when you forgive that wrong, you're releasing the debt of what that person owes. They steal five bucks. They owe you five bucks. If you forgive them of the five bucks, you absorb that debt in yourself. If someone slanders your character to others and there's a debt that they owe to make that right and and, and so on. But when you forgive, you are acknowledging that you can't require of them all they've taken. Notice in Ephesians 4.32 that all true forgiveness for the Christian, or actually true forgiveness at all in the world, can only be grounded in, modeled on, and flow from the gospel of Jesus Christ. God in Christ has forgiven us eternally in in his son. And therefore, because we are forgiven, we are to be a forgiving people. Not just a repenting people, but a forgiving people. We had a debt. Every human being has a debt against God that we could never repay for being glory thieves. Nor do we want to repay it. But Jesus paid that debt for us on our behalf. Living in difference to God. When you organize your life around anything other than God himself, that is sin and rebellion. When you gather your identity in anything other than Jesus Christ himself, that is sin and rebellion. When you just say meh to God, that is sin and rebellion. And you have a debt against him, but Jesus has come to pay that eternal debt so that we could be accepted by God. And Father, Son, and Holy Spirit have forgiven us And then we are to forgive others. An unforgiving Christian is a contradiction in terms. How can we, the only people in all the universe, the world, there aren't other people in the universe, how can we of all people who have been forgiven eternally not then forgive others? Jesus has a lot to say about that. But what is in our hearts and what is the way of the world is not forgiveness, but feuding. Right? Right. When we are wronged by someone, we become our own vigilantes of justice and seek out our own vengeance. We become judge, jury, and executioner all wrapped up in one in that very moment. Our propensity, even with the remaining sin, is to not immediately drift into forgiveness, but to drift into vengeance and feuding. You wronged me, so I'm going to wrong you. You hurt me, so I'm going to hurt you. That's the way of the world. That's the way of Satan. That's the way of our unrestrained flesh. Yes, it leads to war, but it leads to wars in your home. It's the silent treatment that you give by withholding yourself and your love and to someone else, to punish them for the way that they've wronged you, as you have deemed it. 
It's the harsh word. It's this sharp tone. It's whatever you do to pay people back. And it's usually instantaneous. And that is feuding. And that is being a vigilante. And that's meeting out your own vengeance. And none of that is the way of Jesus Christ or his gospel. In fact, his gospel breaks those cycles of feuding. That's not the way of Christ. The gospel in Ephesians 4.32 frees us to be those who forgive even when the offender does not recognize their sin, does not seek forgiveness for their sin, or even contritely own their sin. I'm sorry, right? The, the verbal apology, that's a non-apology. The gospel frees us to forgive. And but when you forgive, and when you keep forgiving all those years later, when the hurt remains real, when you extend gospel forgiveness in that very moment of pain, since you're releasing debt and you're taking it upon yourself, in the very moment when you forgive, even though it hurts so much and you don't want to, but you're following Jesus in those ways, that is also evidence, my friends, of what it means to have the living waters of the Holy Spirit flowing from you as a testimony of the gospel itself. Because when you forgive others who don't deserve forgiveness, so to speak, you're being just like Jesus. Because did you deserve the forgiveness that the cross and empty tomb provide? Did you deserve and did you earn Jesus being coronated with a crown of thorns and taking your sin and shame upon the cross? No, you did not deserve it. You did not not deserve it. You did not earn it. But Jesus, Jesus forgives and therefore he commissions us to forgive. And you can only forgive because, because of the ministry of the Spirit in you. And so when you forgive, pause and turn and you give glory to God that he has changed your heart and reveals himself in your heart to say, I forgive you. Number three, a third evidence of living water, the living water of fruitfulness. Please join me in this long passage, Galatians chapter 5. Galatians chapter 5, we'll begin in verse 16. Listen to this contrast the apostle sets up. Paul begins by saying, But I say, this is Galatians 5.16. But I say, it's a command, walk by the Spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you're led by the Spirit, you're not under the law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envies, drunkenness, orgies, and in case your item's not on the list, and things like these. He says... Verse 21 continues, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit 
the kingdom of God. But, verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Here in Galatians 5, Paul refers to living by the Spirit and keeping in step with the Spirit, um, walking by the Spirit. And all of those phrases carry the same idea of what Jesus says in 738 of the Gospel of John, the living waters of the Holy Spirit. But in Galatians 5, we read that there is a moment-by-moment battle raging in the soul of a Christian. It's a war between your remaining sin, the trickeries of the world, and empty philosophies of men that have plausibility structures but can take captive our thoughts rather than the Bible. There's a war in our soul of remaining sin and its desires that fight against the new creation you, the uh, Holy Spirit-filled part of you. That's a very poor way of thinking about the ministry of the Holy Spirit, but just go with me on that. Theologians of a long time ago referred to this war as mortification and vivification. We are to put to death the deeds of the flesh by the Holy Spirit. Meaning the living water of the Holy Spirit flowing in us lets us see our sin and by those waters quench the fires of sin, so to speak. We're to put to death the deeds of the flesh, mortification, and we're to, as Galatians 6 says, walk by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit, and that's vivification. One is death-giving, one is life-giving. Following the flesh will always, only ever lead to death. God will not bless what he's already condemned in his word, so don't fool yourself. If you think that you can trifle and with sin and entertain sin and live with sin and there won't be consequences, there are. So we mortify the old word, the deeds of the flesh, and we vivify, we walk in the spirit. You see, we put off the old self, old ways, old feelings, old beliefs, old desires, and we put on Jesus and Jesus' ways and Jesus' beliefs and Jesus' feelings and more. But what's amazing about this Galatians passage is just as a diamond is singular but multifaceted, right, many-sided, this strange fruit, it's not the fruits of the Spirit, it's the fruit. Now, it could be a plural noun, but it looks like that it's the evidence of the living water of the Spirit in a person's life. We will see the bud, bud, and the flower, flower, and the fruit produce over time and seasonally in the life of a Christian. And it's not you sitting there and just white-knuckling, trying to bear fruit. You're welcome for that picture. It's the Holy Spirit producing it in us. 
And therefore, there is something in us that recognizes sin, puts it off, and in following the Holy Spirit, in doing so, the fruit is born by Him. The living water waters His own fruit that He produces. To walk by the Spirit, to have the Spirit bear fruit in your life, that's the love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So when there is another complaining child or spouse or roommate or friend or yourself and you respond to complaints with gentleness, when there is a person who is perennially annoying to you, possibly even from your perspective a thorn in the flesh, but you begin to respond with genuine concern and brotherly love when you meet sinful anger with, with goodness. When you're about to hit enter, but hit delete, exercising self-control, when every corner of life hits you with a stiff breeze of hardship and pain, but you respond with joy in Jesus? When you respond in these ways, when otherwise you wouldn't have in the past, when you would have responded in your flesh, these are all moment-by-moment evidences that you believe in Jesus and that His Spirit is bearing that fruit in your life. Not so that you can self-congratulate, but that you can Christ congratulate. Spirit of Christ, thank for his work in you. It's an evidence of the living water of the fruit of the Spirit in your life. You know, one of the things that um, gets mentioned quite a bit is, is how sin blinds us. And when we become blind to our blindness, we need the ministry of others to help us see what we can't see. The other side to that coin is we can become blind to that glorious work of the fruit-bearing ministry of the Holy Spirit in our lives as well. And we ought to be doubly, triply, quadruply, and whatever other words we can keep going with that big number, we ought to be more readily quick with our words to point out all these evidences of grace in the lives of those people around us in the lives of our church family, especially in your home, right? It's those close to us who we tend to take granted the most. But what if we, by the living waters, pointed out the evidence of the living waters in those around us and had the ministry of encouragement? I know that I would love to grow in that area myself. Number four, the living water of devoting yourself. Devoting yourself. We'll see what that means. Turn to Acts chapter 2 in this glorious passage. Acts chapter 2, beginning in verse 42. Acts 2, 42, the living water of devoting yourself. Verse 42 to the end of the chapter, verse 47. Here's what they read. Let me just set the context on this one at the least. The church has just been born. The Holy Spirit has just been poured out. The Tower of Babel has been reversed. They all speak the same language. And they have a megachurch of about 5,000 people born that very day. 
And here's what we read. They would gather in the temple in the day to listen to the apostles' teaching and picking up in Acts 2.42, listen to what the spirit-filled life looked like. And they devoted themselves to four things, to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And all came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Now, this fourth point, the living water of devoting yourself. Do you see what happened when the church was born? The instinctual impulse of these first Christians and Christians down through the ages has been to gather regularly together. Do you see that? The Spirit was poured out. He began to flow the living waters through them. And what did they want to do? They wanted to gather in the temple by day for preaching and then assemble by small groups in the evenings in homes to eat together and pray together, to fellowship together, all around the apostles' teaching. That was their instinctual impulse. They wanted to be with each other. When Acts 2.42 says they devoted themselves... The grammar indicates it was something they did to themselves. Meaning it wasn't a requirement foisted upon them. They weren't forced to do it. They weren't coerced to do it. No, they wanted to. There was a magnetic impulse that just drew them to assembling with each other. Jesus had upended their lives and they wanted nothing more than to gather with other life upended people. Who loved Jesus. They devoted themselves to gather with others to study the Bible. To help each other know and follow Jesus. To bear each other's burdens. To pray and to break bread. They were loyal to these practices. Because they were loyal to Christ. And loyalty to Christ always leads to loyalty to his body. The local church. Their relationships were built around the Bible out of affection for the Savior, which led to affection for one another. Uh, These Christians didn't have an entertainment-driven faith. They didn't have a what's-in-it-for-me faith. They had a I-want-more-and-more-of-Jesus type faith, which meant they had a I-want-more-and-more-of-Jesus-people type faith. And what was this in evidence of? The living water of the Holy Spirit who had just been poured out in Acts 2. You you see, if you haven't noticed yet, in all of these points, the Holy Spirit not only flows in us, but what does Jesus say? He flows out of us. So it's not a cesspool and swamp, so to speak. The ministry of the third person of the Trinity in the life of a believer is an outflowing, other-oriented, ongoing ministry. Every single evidence that we've looked up so far, 
repentance and forgiveness and fruit of the Spirit and more. And what we're going to see coming is personal but not private. Do you see that? Did you know that? The, the Christian life is personal, but it's not private. Repentance, forgiveness, fruit, they are all about for other people. Forgiveness happens to others. None of this forgive myself nonsense. It's, it's forgiving other people. Here's what's being implied. When you absent yourself from the regular ongoing ministry of the body of Christ, you are absenting yourself from the ministry of the Holy Spirit through others to you. Because when the room is filled with people full of the Holy Spirit who is flowing out of each of us, bearing the fruit of the Spirit out of each of us, the people who are quick to repent and, and, and willing to extend forgiveness, when all of that is going on, you get impacted by that. That's the whole point of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. It's not privatized. The Christian life is not designed for you to go walk in the woods by yourself. That's not church. Church is the assembly of the people. And so that when you absent yourself from the regular ongoing ministry of the body of Christ in the local church, you are removing yourself from this ministry of the Holy Spirit in your life. That means that you are impoverishing yourself, stunting your spiritual growth in Christ-likeness, and weakening your faith. Friends, this may be why you have certain ongoing struggles in your life because you have not been a beneficiary of the ministry of the body of Christ because you're not functionally part of it. Sunday is not all there is to the Christian life, but the gathering of the saints on a Sunday morning and all that we intentionally do here is the centerpiece of the Christian life. There's more, but it's never less. This is where it starts, when we assemble to sing the word and pray the word and see the word in, in baptism and the Lord's Supper and to minister the word to one another. It may be that you have ongoing struggles. It may be that you have seen other Christians younger than you, mature faster than you, because you have not been obedient to the word when we see that we are to not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And the other side of that coin is the Holy Spirit in you. You are robbing others of the ministry of the Holy Spirit from you to them. It's mutuality. It's this togetherness. That means that we are designed to be interdependent and needy of one another and help one another know and follow Jesus. The ministry of the Holy Spirit is life-giving. That's why Jesus calls the Holy Spirit here living waters. So I will suggest one way to quench the Holy Spirit in your life is to not believingly walk in Jesus' word. That means Jesus' commands, Jesus' ways, Jesus' attitudes, and Jesus' priorities. What does James say? James 1, 22 to 25. But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. 
For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks intently at his natural face in the mirror. He looks at himself, goes away, and then forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of freedom, liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he'll be blessed in his doing. Listen, you can't pursue Jesus without pursuing his body, the local church. You should think about that. And love for the imperfect people of God that make up the local church, gathering around the word is further evidence that the spirit is not quenching your life, but flowing. So for us to assemble like this, for you to not do something else, But to choose to gather with the saints and do all that we do is itself evidence of the life-giving waters of the Spirit in your life. And lastly, and very briefly, Romans 15, 13. The living water of sturdy hope. Romans 15, 13. It's a doxology and benediction. A word of praise and a blessing. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, the living water, you may abound in hope. On this last point, do you realize that the Christian life is meant to be lived from the vantage point of eternal glory. We don't live fixated on the past, nor the present, but the future, the future promises. The promises of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who will never leave us, nor forsake us, the God who ensures that nothing can separate us from His love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. When The Bible for the Christian uses the word hope. This is not a baptized version of a Christian wish. Because that's how we use it in society, right? In our language, I cross the fingers, I hope this happens. That's not biblical. That's unbelief. No, in the Bible, for example, the book of Hebrews, Hebrews defines hope as an anchor of the soul. Hope as an anchor of the soul. What does an anchor do? It fixes and tethers you to a position. Kind of like top roping when you're climbing. Your anchor is above you, and so as you ascend, the slack is brought in from the rope, and when you fall, you only fall the stretch of the rope, not some long whipper. That's what it's called. We worship and serve a God of hope who has given us sturdy and rugged hope in Christ. Or as C.S. Lewis says, the unblushing promises of reward. There's a hope set before us. It's an unshakable hope of the gospel. And the future hope, the anchor of the soul, is meant to be the navigation system and motivation system for your life. And when you get out of bed knowing that the difficulties of today will be nothing compared to the glories of future glory, that's evidence of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Because what did Paul say in Romans 15, 13? By the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Hope, like the fruit of the Spirit, is not something that you conjure up in yourself. Hope is the ministry of the Spirit in us. If Job clung to God in his suffering, 
if all the imperfect saints of Hebrews 11 and 12 and and the entire book, really, if the imperfect saints of all of Christianity have looked to future hope in Jesus, if Jesus himself endured the cross because of the hope set before him, the joy set before him, then, friends, there is something that is promised to us in John seven thirty eight. Whoever thirsts, let him come to me and drink, Jesus says. And if you believe then rivers of living water will flow from you. Friends, there's something promised us that is even better than this life itself. That's eternal life in Christ as adopted adopted daughters and sons of God in the glory of the new heaven and new earth. And who will sustain us through this wilderness in Jesus? It's the living waters of the Holy Spirit. All of these few pieces of biblical art in this gallery of the Bible that we've looked at. The context of John 7 is the example that the Christian life is sojourning in the wilderness of this age in the second exodus and Jesus is the rock following us with living waters. But in this case, to be a Christian means that we participate in the life-giving and flowing waters and that's the ministry of the Holy Spirit who will never leave us nor forsake us. May the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you that you have invented a world in which you are willing and wanting from eternity to step in armed and fortified with your gospel to bring dead people to life in Jesus, people bound in darkness to light in Christ, people shackled to Satan and sin to be free in Jesus. Thank you. But Lord, you don't just leave us. Your aim in the gospel is to make us your own daughters and sons and and even to dwell in us. So Lord, these words... We see and hear and recognize they are far more glorious than we recognize. But we pray that your spirit this morning would quench the thirst that we have in you and also flow from us to the benefit and blessing of others. Father, we ask this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, amen. Friends, let's participate in the Lord's Supper together and feast and drink on Christ, as it were. You'll find cup and cracker uh, on a chair or floor around you. I'd invite you to begin to open them. If you're not a Christian, please just refrain from this and observe this strange act that we do that depicts the gospel. And at the same time, if you are a Christian, we invite you to join us. So so consider praying with someone that you came with. Consider um, how the Holy Spirit ministered to you in the word this morning, and I'll lead us to partake in a few moments.